My name is Jeremy. I'm the preaching pastor here and have the privilege of sharing God's Word uh, frequently with you on Sunday mornings. If you're visiting our church this summer, we are going through um, some selected psalms, psalms that our congregation have chosen on the basis of their familiarity and love for them. And uh, we've been blessed and privileged to go through this beautiful and poetic look at God's heart and the heart of the poets and psalmists and authors of Scripture this summer. Today is no different. We'll be looking at Psalm 51. Um, Before we do so, however, if you're familiar with me, you know that I will probably tell a story. And that is not just because I like to tell stories, although I do like to tell stories. But it is for the specific purpose of... In hopes, this is a little bit of your sort of, this is your bonus cut or behind the scenes, your extra look at what's going on behind the sermon preparation factory. Um, Backstage past, this is what's happening, is I am hoping that as a result of these stories, what will happen is throughout the week, you'll be driving through Cole's parking lot and you'll run into a duck. And I'll have less issue when driving through there. But you'll remember some sort of story or something that will call to mind the sermon throughout the week. And as a result, that hook that you will hopefully have had will bring it back and you'll begin to once again meditate on God and His Word. And you will think, oh yeah, I think we talked about this on Sunday. And in my view, that's the way Jesus did it with His stories and other things. That's why I'm trying to sort of uh, copy in a much lesser form, but I also I also do so in a very personal way. I share stories about our family and other things. And part of the reason is too is I'm new, and there's a thousand of you and one of me. And this is a very fast way in hopes of me um, developing a relationship with you, even if it's not on an individual basis. At least we have a corporate relationship where we come to know each other and understand each other all the more. So my hope is that you will remember the main idea and we get to know each other a little better. Does that sort of make sense? Okay, so here comes the story. Ready? This week, uh, I had the privilege of going on a morning jog or run. And uh, depending on when my children wake up, sometimes I take one, sometimes I take two, sometimes I take none. And this day I happened to take two and they jump on their bikes and I put on my shoes and out the door we go. And as you can imagine, it's interesting when you're running and they're biking because you're not listening or you're kind of focused on them and you're like, okay, wait, stop coming. Look out for the car. Okay, go to the right. Don't run over that person. You know, watch out over here. And you're managing throughout the whole run. Well, at one point in this run, uh, as we're learning, you know, hand signals, right, stop, left, you know, etc. Helmets on, ring your bell go carefully around the corner, watch out for turning cars, yada, yada. We're going through all this, and we're trying to develop their safety skills and such. And I see up ahead two elderly ladies. Now, God bless them. We all came from mothers, and we love elderly ladies. But there they are, and they're standing on the sidewalk, and they're looking at the flowers, you know? And they're chatting, right? This is what they do, right? They're looking at the flowers, they're chatting, they're going, oh, this is my yard, blah, 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 blah. And I've been coaching my boys, and here they come, and I'm seeing, okay, narrow sidewalk, elderly ladies, what's going to happen here, right? And I'm like, guys, 
And I'm, I'm tailing off now because they're seeing the finish line in sight and they're starting to pedal faster and my pedaling's all gone. I'm like getting tired. I'm like, guys, hey, ring your bell, right? Ring the bell. Warn them because we've worked on this. On your left, ring, 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 ring. You know, watch out. Here we come. <laughs> they're pedaling along. Guys, watch out. Well, you know, sometimes the hearing works, sometimes it doesn't, <laughs> you know. And there they are. I'm like, oh, man, I can't catch up. Something's going to happen here. We're going to hurt somebody. This is not going to go well. I'm trying. I'm like, guys, guys, come on. Ring the bells. Ring the bells. Well, they're getting closer and closer. And I'm like watching the countdown clock. Ten, nine, eight. Oh, man. Here we go. Well, sure enough, the front guy rings the bell. And there's two ladies, one of which hears the bell, avoids the issue. Right? The second lady, I'm not sure if she didn't hear the bell or if she was just sort of defending her turf, you know, because that was her sidewalk and she got there first and those boys can move or whatever, but she didn't move very far. And I'm like, come on. You know, and the first boy, you know, he, he evades. He's bigger, he's older, he's more mature. And so he, boom, he hits into the grass, goes around her, crisis averted. But second boy, who's close on his heel, a little bit smaller, uh-oh, yeah. Here it comes. And I think, oh, man. You know, well, turns out he didn't crash into her. Okay? Whew. Okay, so no broken hips or anything like that. We're okay. But he crashed, you know? And he tried to avoid her. He rang his bell. He did his best. And I was feeling so bad for the little guy because here he comes down the thing. Bring, bring, bring. And, you know, one lady moves. The other doesn't. And he crashes. Now, you know... I'm telling you this story not to say, like, I'm the ultimate dad or if you, you know, you need to have children or anything. Regardless of your situation, hopefully you can identify with this. You know, you've been a child, you've had a parent, you've seen a bike, you know what's happening here. Kid crashes on the bike. How's it going to go, right? We're going to have some tears. We're going to have a scraped knee. We're going to have a whatever. This is, you know, part of life. And so I'm thinking, okay, let's see how this is going to go. All right. Because, you know, it can go a lot of different ways. You know, sometimes little boys want to be like, I'm okay, didn't hurt. You know? And other times little boys can be like, stupid bike, I hate this thing. You know? And I don't know. I got no idea what's coming. Is he going to totally, like, go off on his bike and the person in front of him? Is he going to bottle it up and... I'm just like, oh boy, okay. And my other kid, he's way up ahead, you know. So now we've got Operation Bike Crash Recovery in process. I'm like, stop, Ezra, wait, wait. You know, he stops. Other guy's down. Dad's doing his best, trying to multitask. I go over there, not knowing what's going to happen. I'm like, hey, Zion, it's okay. By the way, I had his permission to share this story. So please be nice to him afterwards. He's an excellent bike rider he's been riding since he was three he just had a moment so i get down with him like zion it's okay buddy i love you don't worry and it went great it was perfect he stood up he put his little helmeted head right into my shoulder he's kind of like 
you know, but he wasn't trying to be all tough and he wasn't screaming and kicking and fighting. And we've had other situations where it didn't always go that way. And, you know, that's just the way we are, right? So I'm trying to coach him. I'm encouraging him. I'm stroking his back and I'm feeling so good because I'm like, yes, this is exactly how we wanted to handle this thing. We wanted it to go down just like that. Like, it was just a wonderful moment for me. Now, you're looking at me like, you sadistic dad, you know? Your kid just crashed, and you're enjoying this, right? Well, really, as a dad, I know, I don't think I'm sadistic. I love my kids. I don't want them to crash. But I know they're kids, and they're on bikes, and they're going to crash. That's what happens, right? Kids crash. They fall, they skin their knees, they get hurt, they get up, hopefully, God willing. And then the question really for me as a dad and for them as children is not, are you going to crash? But when you do, how will you respond? How will you recover? See, I know you're going to crash and I'm doing everything I can. I've got the helmets and the wrist guards and the silly lights and the flags and everything I can to moderate the impact here. But I still know it's going to happen. And kids, by the way, this is what your parents do. You know, they put the helmets on, the bubble wrap, everything they've got, but they know it's still going to go bad at some point. The key is they try to minimize the fall, right? So here I am trying to minimize the impact. I'm saying, Dad, you know, guy, I love you. And, and hey, look, and he's responding so well. And I'm just like, this is a perfect moment. This is a teachable moment. And so I'm down, you know, one knee on the ground with him. I'm just like, hey, Zion, look. Look at this. Look at your knee. Look at your elbow. He's like, yeah. And we're expecting, you know, blood gushing out and whatever. Nothing. He hit the grass. I'm like, sweet, look at this. You made it. You could have hit the concrete and then you would have been all scraped up and yet you hit the grass. Good job. Good job. And look, Zion, you didn't hit the lady and she's going back to tender flowers and she's okay. Good job. And Zion, look, if you would have swerved the other way, you would have ended in the street and a car would have gone boom over you. <laughs> and you're okay, you know? Look, you're okay. And Zion, just over here, there was a tree. And if you would have crashed that way, you would have broken your arm or worse. And Zion, look, you're okay. And man, we're just going through it. And I'm like, let's pray and thank God just right now that he protected you in this fall. And we're bowing our head and we're praying and we're thanking God. And he's still... He gets up on his bike and he goes home and I'm praising him all the way and telling his mom what a great job he did. And I was so thankful for that opportunity because here's this little guy who I know, you know what, this is one little moment, but there's going to be a lot of crashes in life. And dad's praying big time that they're not big, right? And we're trying, put your seatbelts on. We're talking morally and metaphorically and everything else. We want to protect you. But in the end, we know there's going to be some crashes. And we are just hoping that when that happens, you will recover and respond well. Well, I think, so we look at Scripture, and when you hear this covenant-keeping, incredibly loving God refer to Himself as Father, that He feels the same way. That he looks at His children and says, you know what, guys? I know you're going to crash. I know you are going to crash. I can see it now. I've got perfect balance. I land it right every time, but you don't. You're going to fall. And what's a big deal for me is not so much, you know, whether or not you're going to fall, because I know you are, but how you recover when you do. 
What's that going to look like? Are you going to run to me in response? Or are you going to bottle it up? And are you going to throw a fit? Which one? If you come running to me, I assure you I can take care of it. I got this thing covered. No problem. But if you handle it the other way, it's going to go poorly. How will you respond? Today as we look at Psalm 51, I think that's the message we're going to see through the psalm. Is that God wants us to run to Him. He knows we're going to crash. And the question for us is how will we respond? Crash we're going to see today is a pretty big one. Pretty big. And you may think he crashed and burned and there's no recovery, but what you'll actually see is that there is. With a God like this, anything is possible. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you then to turn to the 51st chapter of the book of Psalms. This is David's response to his sin and God's response as well. And it's a beautiful, beautiful picture of repentance, of the perfect recovery after a major crash. Psalm 51, 51st chapter of the book of Psalms. Here it is up on the screen. It reads like this. Here's the title that a scribe gave to it later in time. He says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Here's what David prayed. <clears throat> Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Lord, Ultimately, it's against you and you alone that I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be proved just or justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. You're right. Behold, I was even brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother did conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in this secret heart. Now some covenantal language for you. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness and let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face, not from me, Lord, but from my sins and blot out my iniquities. God, create, create, create. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, dear Lord, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me, Lord, that which we all long for, the incredible joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from the blood guiltiness of this mess, O God, O God of my salvation. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I'd give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. But here is what you want, God. This is your desire. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. 
Oh God, these you will not despise. Now for your people, for the larger body, God, do good to Zion in your good pleasure and build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you, then, then you will delight in right sacrifices and in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today, as I've tried to express, I believe that the theme of this chapter is to run to the Father. You'll see that up here on the slide. It is to run to the Father. This should be our response when we fall. The way it breaks down in this psalm is basically, I think, in three key parts. If you're taking notes, you're welcome to write these. The first phrase I want to focus in on is that term called have mercy. Have mercy. The second is... The terms of the agreement according to the covenant. According to the covenant. Have mercy according to your covenant. And the final is the final step and that is to create. Create. So let us begin then and look at the first term which is have mercy. Have mercy. Verse 1 says, Have mercy on me, O God. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me, cleanse me, for I know my sin. And it's ever before me. Now, this is a neat text because as you're sitting there in, that, in your seats this morning, I imagine the feeling for you is just the same. You know your sin. I don't. God does. But your sin is before you. And as much as you try to blot it out and forget about it and put it behind your head, it's actually right there. You can see it. And so can God. And we can clean ourselves up and come to church and look really nice on a Sunday morning and smile and get a cup of coffee and go out the door. But that sin is still right there, unless you've dealt with it. Here is David. Now, let me give you a little bit of a peel back the onion, look at the inner layer. Here's what's happening in his life. The sin that he did is this, 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12 as well. I'm going to just, that's one of the cool things about Scripture is because if, if guys had wrote their own stories, you know, they would always be the hero and never make a mistake. But since the Holy Spirit is guiding this, they record some of their worst moments. Like Peter in his denial and David in his fall. These are not the stories of the victor who's bragging about how great he is. These are the fallen who've been redeemed. So let's look then at 2 Samuel. And actually, you don't even have to uh, open your Bibles, not because I don't want you to, but because I want to show it to you and I'm going to summarize it quickly because it is two chapters and I just want you to get the idea so that you know the context of what's happening here. This is King David, the greatest king in all of Israel. If you're familiar with Scripture, you've heard this name a lot. Even if you're not, you've probably heard of the King David Hotel in Israel and other things. This is the, this is the you know, Michael Jordan of Israel, if you will. This guy is big. Here is King David, the greatest king ever. He's at a high point in his career. Things are going well for him. The throne is established and he is sitting pretty. So then, amidst that setting, this is what happens in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Story of David and Bathsheba. It says this in the New Living Translation. It says, in the spring of the year, now here's your first hint that things might go poorly. When kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army out to fight. However, he stayed behind in Jerusalem. Mistake number one. Now, late one afternoon after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace and he looked over the city. 
And he noticed a woman of unusual beauty. Be careful what you notice, men. And he sent someone to find out who she was. And he was told she is Bathsheba. And I wonder if his messenger emphasized this word. The wife of Uriah the Hittite. And David sent messengers to get her. And when he came to the palace, he slept with her. And later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message like, I'm pregnant. Now, the king and all of his power and grandeur thinks this is no problem. I can cover it up. We've got the secret service or whatever. We'll usher out the back door and bring her husband home for a weekend. And since he's a soldier fighting on the front, he'll do what any soldier would do and spend time with his wife. And as a result, we can blame it on him and not me. And I'm clear. Good. Good to go. And he invites Uriah home. But as it turns out, Uriah is no ordinary soldier. Instead of doing what an ordinary soldier would do, Uriah doesn't. And he feels a burden for his men. And instead of being comforted and going into his wife, he sleeps outside. And even when David gets him to the point of being completely drunk, he still doesn't give in. Now here's a righteous man. How did it go for him? It doesn't fit too well with prosperity theology, I think. But here is Uriah, who refuses and is righteous, and as a result, he is killed. But even then, it didn't work. And so the next morning, uh, well, this is how he is killed. David writes a letter to the commander of the army and says, Hey, I want you to put this guy in the thick of it, and then when you do, pull back. and see what happens. The commander says, Yes, sir. Commander does. Uriah dies. And David goes and gets his prize. But the text finishes in verse 27. It says, uh, she gave birth to a son, but the Lord was displeased with what David had done. No doubt. Reasonably so. Stole another man's wife, killed him, and took what he could. Now, we Americans who don't have that kind of power can sit back and say, well, that old king, what a tyrant, he's horrible. Never do a thing like that. So I read this story, however, I think that many of us in his shoes, in fact, might have. The guy is bored. He's at home. He's not doing anything. He's lonely. He's desirous. And he did what he could. He took because he could. He was king. There are things, perhaps not another man's wife, but other things that we want, that we take, that we should not have. And here is David, and the Lord is displeased. And as a result, God in his grace and in his compassion, if God was ungracious, he would have left it at that and let David destroy himself. But God in his grace and in his compassion sends Nathan the prophet to confront David. And Nathan comes and tells him the story and David, you know, realizes what the point is and he repents clearly. And the words of his repentance come through in this psalm in words like have mercy, wash, cleanse, purge, cast me not away. Terms of remorse and regret come through very, very clear. And I think what's so cool about this story then is We get to know David in a very real way. 
and sitting not above him, looking down on him, but identifying with him as a real person and not just saying, man, here's a perfect hero of the faith, but here is a guy, just a regular guy like you and me. And yeah, he crashed hard and he messed up bad. I mean, he really blew it. There's no question about it. But what we come to know David for then is not his perfection, but his repentance. We get to know this man not as perfect, but as repentant. And I think that is a huge, huge moral takeaway for our Christian lives. If you want someone to know you as perfect, you're going the wrong route. You're making a big mistake. What they should know you as is not as perfect, but as repentant. In this text, we have the beautiful, clear, um, transparent, open, vulnerable confession of the king. (laughs) You know, do you want to confess in front of your children? No, why not? Because you'll be embarrassed. I'm the mom. I'm the dad. I don't do that. Does a pastor want to confess in front of his church? Well, no, I'm the pastor. I'm supposed to walk on water and heal people, right? No, we're people. And we need to know, be known not as perfect, but instead as repentant. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So I look at these terms and I hear his heart and I feel not for David an overwhelming sense of superiority, but instead a sense of sorrow. And I wonder, how in the world is this guy going to recover from such a fall? He crashed. What now? And it's absolutely wild when you look at these terms to see how he recovers. Wash, cleanse, purge. If you're a grammarian, what are those? Those are commands. Those are imperatives. All throughout the text, my computer, is, which is set up with a certain query to show me the commands, has, has these words highlighted and in red. And the reason I do that is when I look at the New Testament, I want to say, thus saith the Lord, here's God's command to you. And when I look at this passage, what I see is not God's command to David, but in fact, David's command to God. Well, what is that? Can people command God? Can the finite say, do this to the infinite? Can the limited to the unlimited, to the weak, to the mighty? And yet here it is in the Psalm of David. Well, perhaps he didn't know everything that we knew. Look at the Lord's Prayer. Follow it all throughout. Give us this day our daily bread. Lead us not into temptation. Forgive us our debts. Those are all commands. How is it that we as human beings get off commanding God? Who would hold him accountable? Certainly not us. How can we say such a thing? There's the answer. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> Here's what I have as the answer. I, I think what you see in this text, and I've hinted at it a little bit before, is these terms, 
of covenant. We talked about the wash, the purge, the cleanse, the blot out. All those are Old Testament imagery from the temple ceremonies. When the priest goes in, slaughters a sacrificial animal, cuts the throat, takes the hyssop branch, sprinkles the blood upon the altar and the victim and and the repentant and goes out. These are all covenantal terms. And you look at the next few terms and you hear terms like according to. Listen to this. If you're an attorney, this is the legal terms of the agreement. According to the covenant. Your steadfast love, your hesed, your abundant mercy, according to, according to, repeated twice for emphasis. Terms like these, love and mercy, you will find in Exodus chapter 4 when the Lord is making his deal with Israel via Moses. It says, here are the terms of my covenant, here are the terms of the agreement, and we focus on the law and all the legal stipulations and go, wow, that's a mess, but look at the preamble, which is more important than any of that. And here is what it says. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, listen to these terms, a merciful and gracious God. Same word, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, in hesed, in covenant love, in faithfulness, in contractual agreement, keeping it, verse 7, for thousands and thousands of generations. God is faithful. This is covenant love. And that's why in my outline today, I I said, you know, the first one is have mercy. And the second one I said, according to the covenant, because I'm afraid if I said have mercy and according to your love, you know, everybody's watched a romantic film or comedy or whatever would have no idea what I'm talking about. So when the Bible speaks about love, it has nothing to do with what our society calls love. When the Bible talks about love, it's talking about a contractual agreement, a settled decision that is unbreakable, that is eternal, that is always selfless and self-sacrificial and puts the interest of the other before its own at all times. (laughs) Is that love? Is that your definition of love? Is that what you see in the movies or in TV or in songs? Is that love? That's what the Bible says is love. It's totally different than what we know or experience or are told to be true. But here it is. A covenant, a binding contractual agreement. And as such, David, the murderer, the adulterer, the philanderer, the scumbag, can walk up to the perfect, holy, and infinite God and say, I command you thus. How can he do that? According to the covenant. According to the agreement. God himself has bound himself. God, when he approaches Abraham, does this um, Semitic sort of covenant. It's a weird dream. You see him passing through the parts of the animal and you go, what's going on there? God is showing them in terms of their contractual agreement. This is how I work. I bind myself to it. And Abram, you understand that, you, you know, this Hittite, vast, suzerain, vassarin treaty thing. Now, I am binding myself to that agreement. We would understand a contractual agreement. But look, in the Old Testament, there's the blood of the animal which seals the deal. In the New Testament, there's the blood of Christ. How firm is the covenant on which you stand? Well, how sufficient is the blood of Jesus? 
If you feel that's got you covered, then you can call on it. If it's not good enough, you have no place to stand, nowhere to go. But because of the blood of Jesus Christ, you can go boldly to the throne of God. Say, God, I command you thus. Whoa. According to your covenant in which you have bound yourself. God is sworn by himself because there is no one higher that he could swear by. Therefore, because of that, because he has entered into this agreement and said, I will be bound by these terms and I will hold myself accountable. I promise you thus, you can call on it. You can claim it. Have mercy upon me, O God, and I come to you not based on my own abilities. That's called religion. That's not worship. I come to you, O God, because, you know, I'm a tax-paying citizen. I have no felonies or whatever on the record. I try to love my kids and buy groceries and mow my lawn. So help me out here. No way. It's not enough. Come to you, God. Because I submit to the terms of your agreement. I willingly enter into your contract and say that I myself can never pay for my sins. But I'm totally dependent on you. And based not on what I've done, but instead on the finished and completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his blood which washes, purges, blots out my transgression which is ever before me on account of this. I command you to forgive me. I call on you, God, to honor your agreement. And I know you will because you are faithful and steadfast from generation to generation to generation based on according to your covenant. Lord, this is yours. Do what you've said you'd do. I've got something so much better than a lamb or a bull. I've got Jesus himself, and I stand on solid ground. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. And I shall not be moved. God, forgive me. Forgive me. Amen? He's got it covered. I'll try to explain it to you in a little bit different way. Um, I, I'm new to this homeowner business, and we're discovering all the joys of homeownership. <laughs> and sometimes I wonder, hmm, is arson a, th- a problem? <laughs> you know, <laughs> what would happen if? <laughs> I've got a solution for this. <laughs> but no, we're not going there. I've just confessed publicly and on video, so obviously not. But Here's the thing. When you buy your house, you're required to get a homeowner's insurance policy because you owe way too much money on it. The bank is never going to go for it unless you've got something backing you up, right? So here's my homeowner's insurance policy. And I thought to myself the other day, how interesting would it be? And this, I mean, this almost happened, not exactly, but, um, you know, the preacher's allowed a little bit of masala for the sake of communicating his point. So imagine if you would. Um, here's what happens. I, I'm, it's a Saturday morning, and I've been gone all week, you know, and working man, whatever. And 
So it's mom's day to go to the grocery store. This is her, you know, time alone, right? So she's off at the grocery store. I've got all three kids. And I'm thinking, I'm going to do a good job. Here goes dad. Watch this, everybody. So I'm, I'm cooking, right? I'm going to cook breakfast. I'm, I'm going for eggs and toast. I can do that. Man food, right? Here we go. Eggs, toast, bacon. Boom. Got the oven on. Eggs and toast are going. You know, kids are coming around. I think we're moving into a good spot. We're moving, right? Then the phone rings. No problem, I got this, all right? Watching the eggs, listening to the phone. Okay, doing okay. Then the baby cries. All right, still got another hand, I'm good. Go get the baby, got the baby on the hip, watching the eggs, we're doing well. Uh-oh, baby's got mm, a little bit stinky. Okay, that's all right, we'll finish the eggs and take care of baby. Uh-oh, kids are disagreeing. Now a bowl just fell on the floor, it's shattered everywhere, there's glass. Nobody move, hold on, dad's got everything under control. <laughs> Right? Okay, so go clean up the glass. Got baby on the hip, phone on the arm. Eggs are there. Go clean up poo-poo. Come out. Uh Uh-oh, time for swimming lessons. Out the door we go, but guess what? Forgot to turn off the stove. All of a sudden, those eggs are getting kind of warm, right? Before long, there's a fire. I go to swim lessons, think I'm doing pretty good. Everybody's well-fed. And I come back home, and what do I see? Ashes. Boom. Whole house is burnt to the ground. Now, before the boys pull out the marshmallows and try to start making s'mores, Dad is collapsed on a heap, crying, and Mom's coming home with the groceries. (laughs) I realize, hey, no worries, I got a homeowner's insurance policy, right? Let me, well, no. I don't really want to bother that insurance agent. They were so nice when they sold it to me. I'm telling you, those insurance agents, when they're selling, they are nice, (laughs) You know, making the claim, eh, no offense, all right? So here we go. I'm thinking, I don't really want to call her back because she might be mad at me. You know, I didn't turn, I messed up. My fault. I blew it. I didn't turn off the stove. I burnt the house down to the ground. It is my fault. I'm not sure if I really want to make a claim. Besides, it's only been, you know, like 100 bucks a month and it's nowhere close to the value of the house and I'm not sure if it's even fair. I can't pay for this house. What am I going to do? Got to make the claim, right? I have to. I have to make the claim. Even though I haven't sufficiently paid for this thing, even though I'm a little bit embarrassed because I'm the guy who messed up, I burn it to the ground, I still have to swallow my pride and go to the insurance agent and say, I messed up. I blew it. I thought I was Mr. I got it under control. And I burnt the whole thing down. But guess what? There's life. We think we've got it all under control. We're good. We're, you know, we're spinning these plates and we got things going and all of a sudden we mess up. And we burn the whole thing to the ground. We burn it to the ground. And the question is, what are you going to do? You're going to go to God and make the claim? You're going to say, no, I'm not sure about this God. He might be mad at me. He he might say, I didn't pay for it. He might say, you haven't done enough. What am I going to say? He's right. That's the thing, right? We could never pay for our sin. We don't have any right to go before him. 
We did it ourselves, and we burnt the thing to the ground, and yet he says, come to me, make the claim, and I will pay. Do you understand what I'm talking about this morning? That's the blood of Jesus. Spiritually, we came out of the womb with the burner on. David says, you, when I started, I was a sinner, and you don't have to look very far throughout my life to figure that out. Same is true with you and same is true with me. We were born sinners and we sinned to prove it. We came out with a burner on and we burnt the whole thing to the ground and we could never afford to pay for a new one. But imagine in this situation what would happen if I went to my insurance agent and she said, hey, 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 no worries. I've got you so covered. I'm thinking, okay, depreciation, deductible, yada, yada, yada. Here comes my new trailer, right? (laughs) Whatever. And she said, no, you don't understand. You had a $100,000 mortgage. We insured you for a million. And we're going to rebuild this house like you would not believe. We've already got the plans in place. They're set. I've drawn them up and designed them because I kind of knew what you'd be doing on Saturday morning. (laughs) What happens when we go to God? He says, yeah, you burn it down, baby. You burnt the whole thing to the ground. This policy I've got, it's got you totally covered. Not only do I come in and clean up and restore, we doze the whole thing. But then... I lay a whole new foundation, a solid foundation on Christ, the solid rock, and the apostles. And I begin to rebuild it. And the plans are already in place for this new structure to be so much better than anything you had before. I'm not just going to clean you up. That's justification. But I am going to rebuild, rebuild you as well. That's sanctification. And I'm going to bring you to a point where you are totally finished and complete so that all your neighbors walk by and go, wow, look at that. I knew that old dump that used to be here and now it's completely different. That's called glorification. Salvation is a process that God is walking you through. The plans are in place. His contract is undeniable. And all you got to do is make the claim. You go to him and he takes care of the rest. What a beautiful thing that is. That's why David says, create in me a clean heart. He doesn't go out and say, fix them. Fix my community, fix my church, fix my family, fix my job, fix my country. It's all a wash. Nope, it's in me. Start building right here. This is where it starts. God comes in and takes care of the rest. That's why the Apostle Peter, he says it like this. Here's how this is biblical. You yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house. Paul says it similarly in Colossians. Rooted and built up in him. In Colossians. And established in the faith just as you were taught. And then he goes on and he says, look, you're being built up on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone you're a building project you make the claim god rebuilds that's a good deal today i'm not sure where you're at i don't know if you've ever made that claim or not 
but I encourage you to do so. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior for the first time, we want you to do so today. At the end of the service, we have elders down here willing to pray for you. We're going to celebrate the contract and covenantal agreement this morning. We're going to look at the blood which seals the deal and the body that was broken and given on our behalf. We are Christians, and that means we celebrate the covenant. And this is a binding sign for all generations to know this is what we do until the Lord returns. And when he does, what a great day that will be. That is why I think one of our favorite stories in the New Testament or the New Covenant is the story of the prodigal son. Here's a guy that basically burned the whole thing to the ground. He messed up in every way he could. His life has gone down so low that he's living literally in a pigsty. And then at the end of his rope, he knows nothing else to do. And finally he decides, well, maybe I should go back to dad. Maybe, maybe I'll go back to the father. And he goes back to the father. And you know what happens? When he takes one step, the father runs. When you run to the father, he runs to you. He bends down and he strokes your back and says, it's okay, man. Look at this. Could have been so much worse, but I've got you covered. Everything's okay. Because I'm here and I forgive you according to my love and my faithfulness. God is a good and gracious God. He wants to forgive you. He wants to love you. He wants you to call him on his contract, on his covenant. Run to the Father. Plead with him to have mercy according to the covenant and then create, rebuild a new heart and a new spirit within me. Don't leave me just demolished and bulldozed. That would only be half done. You want to complete this project, you rebuild the new one. The full circle is that you plead for forgiveness according to the contract, then God comes in and rebuilds. He creates in you a new heart and a right spirit. I encourage you to do that this morning as we get ready to take the Lord's Supper. I'm going to pray and Pastor Jeff's going to come up here and we're going to give you a chance to examine yourselves. And I want you to pray just like that. According to God's binding contractual agreement where you come to Him not on your terms but on His. You repent because you're not perfect. You say, God, I need it. And there it is. I mean, here is the representation of the physical body and blood of Jesus that cleanses me from all my sin. And it's on Him and Him alone that I rely. And because of that, I know you will be faithful. God, cleanse me. Purge me. Create in me a clean heart, O Lord, and renew a right spirit within me. Father, we're so thankful for your grace. What an incredible, amazing gift. Your beautiful and blessed Son, Jesus, to give himself on our behalf. Lord, I admit, and I hope that we admit, I am a wretched and sinful man. I call out with the tax collector and say, oh, wretched man that I am. Who would save someone like me? Yet, Lord, you and your grace, by your word, which endures. And to this and this alone, we appeal, not to our merit, but to your mercy. Oh, God, have mercy on us.
Amen.